Shalom, shalom, and welcome to the Book of Leviticus with Messianic leader Jacques Isaac Gabizon. We are going to learn from Leviticus that it was the priest who was to put the fire on the altar. But did you know that the very first fire that was kindled on the altar of that tabernacle was not done by the priest? That first fire was one that came from heaven itself. Let's read from Leviticus 9.24 where it says, Fire came from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Imagine such a great awe to see fire come from heaven. And the second time that that was to happen was at the dedication of Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 1. Once that fire was lit, the command came that the altar's fire was never to be extinguished, never to go out, always to be fed with more and more wood. And that is like our relationship with the Lord. He takes the first step and puts our hearts on fire for Him. Our job is to keep supplying that fire with more and more wood on a daily basis, just like the Israelites were called to do. And it says in the verse that they were to arrange the wood on the fire. Now, if the wood that we offer best describes our heart and how it should be arranged, it should be cut down and broken because that's the best offering that we could give to the Lord. It is the broken and the contrite heart that the Lord will never despise. And so we pray, O Lord, that the words of our mouth and the song of our heart would be a sweet aroma to you. May it bring forth springs of life from a heart that was fired up for you and with wood placed in such a way that it follows the pattern of your thoughts and your ways. Be blessed as you listen into today's program with Messianic leader Jacques Isaac Gabizon and Shalom Shalom. Let us now open our Bibles to this great and powerful book of Leviticus, chapter 1. Yes, still in chapter 1. And you know, I, I really thought that by now we would be much further, but this is such a rich chapter where we see the Messiah at every corner and we don't want to miss anything that it says. First, the book said some fundamental truth when it comes to approaching God, to come closer to God. We're taught through the korban, the offering, that to approach God, it must be through a sacrifice, through blood, something that will be enhanced over and over in this book. Then we see the first sacrifice in this book, the rawla, the burnt offering, where the animal is completely burnt in the altar, a symbol of the complete devotion of the Messiah, when he offered himself as our sacrifice, the final sacrifice. Then we consider the skin of the animals, which brought us right back to Genesis, where we see the first sacrifice ever, who performed by God himself when he, he clothed Adam and Eve to cover them and to protect them from death. Then into the peach, with which the ark was covered, remember, outside and inside. We also saw the offerer's duty to slay the animal, to flay the animal, to cut it to pieces, so that he and we can realize the utter destructive nature of sin. And as we are told in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law 
was our teacher to bring us to the Messiah that we might be justified by faith. This is all it's all about, you know. And the book of Leviticus is a great teacher that beautifully unravels the truth about the Messiah of Israel in every one of its details, even when they appear superfluous or unnecessary. And the chapter keeps on pointing to these things in so many ways, going from the pointing to the Messiah, to our roles as believers, that is. Let me bring you right to verse 9, where we'll start this morning. This is why the person himself, the one who brought the sacrifice and not the priest, was also asked to do. This is the type of verse, by the way, you want to read very fast. Maybe you want to skip it, but it has a profound message for us. It's entrails. However, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for the burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. So when you read that the person had to watch the entrails of the animals, you say, ooh, you know, how could God ask such a thing? But I want to tell you, for the person of the time, he was led to think much further. For the word entrails in Hebrew meant so much for him. The word is kereb. It was used as a symbol of the seat of emotion. A seat of, of, of feelings. This word is used in the scriptures for the mind and the heart, like Isaiah speaking of the his inward feelings, or when David spoke of his inner thoughts, he used that word, entrails. And when the person was asked to watch the entrails of the sacrifice, after he confessed his sins, he surely must have made this relation between the washing of his own inner being and the physical washing of the animal being offered. For the sacrifice was not a mere religious act. It was an experience demanding a change of direction of the, for the person. Today the Lord is saying, wash, wash things, wash your bad feelings, so to speak. Wash out your bad memories away and go forward. This David, whose desire, by the way, was to build the temple, understood past the physical sacrifice. And he said, in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is a true sacrifice of God. And notice how twice he uses the word broken and adds one more synonym. For the word contrite also means more than broken. It means crushed to pieces. But it is only when we are broken, when we have broken our old nature, that the Lord will begin or will make us whole. There's nothing like the minute details of Leviticus to come to understand this process of sanctification. In the case of physical requirement, would mean nothing if, like David, we see the practical meaning behind these laws. And this change of direction, by the way, in the believer's life is enhanced when in the same verse 9 of Leviticus, the man is also asked to wash what? The legs. The legs. The, you know, in Hebrew, the word is karar, right? Only used nine times in the scriptures. But this word is used, you know, for what? For bowing down, for worshiping. When kneeling in reverence before God. That is what is written in Isaiah when the Lord says that every knee will bow. The word bow is karar. 
Later in Aramaic, this word was used for worshipping in the first century. Both the entrails and the legs spoke so much of the changes that this confession was expected to produce in the life of the offerer. And what were they going to wash the entrails with? Water. It's understood that any washing should be done with water. But why stress it here? Both in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament, the water is the symbol of the Word of God, which saved us and constantly washes us, as we see in Ephesians 5.26, where we read, so that He, Yeshua Mashiach, might sanctify her, the church, the body of the Messiah, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, His Word. This sanctification, that is the washing of the entrails, the seat of our emotion and the legs, our worship and direction in life, takes place by a continual washing in the water of the Word of God, which are the waters of God, of sanctification, because it always cleanses us. As Yeshua prayed in the priestly prayer in John 17, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is how we get washed, we get sanctified. We are being sanctified by his word to wash our inner feelings and our feet so that we can move and declare the great news of salvation. And furthermore, you know, in the Mosaic law, the commandment was that there was always to be running water, never stagnant water. It was forbidden. That in itself must have been hard to keep up for they did not have any taps like we have today. They had to carry the water to the tabernacle. And in the days of the Temple of Solomon, in the first century, they had to constantly carry the water up the hill. In the same way, the believer is asked to daily and always be refreshed by the living and active Word of God. And moving back now to verse 7, there's yet something else which speaks directly to us. See what it says. The sons of Aaron's the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. You know, reading this verse, it gives us the impression that the priest lit the fire and arranged the wood on top of the altar. But the fire on the altar was always there. It was never put out. Even in the wilderness, they carried the fire with them. This fire comes from God, who originally, at the opening sacrifice, fire came from heaven to consume the first sacrifice, and this fire they kept always. It was the eternal fire. This fire was a gift from God, and this is reflected by the word put. Put in this verse, which is not the usual word for putting or placing something. Here the word is Natan, which means to give, even to give a gift. As if to say that the priest will offer the fire, which is a gift from God for our sacrifices. This type of fire inauguration is something, by the way, the last, I believe, the last false Jewish Messiah will attempt to imitate, as we read in Revelation 13. You know that one that is thing that he does, miracle that he does, is to bring fire from heaven. Perhaps this will take place when he will launch the third temple. But it is in the last word of the verse which brings us to see the ultimate gift of God to man. See the last word where the priest is asked to arrange what? The wood and the fire. This may sound like an unnecessary addition, but they remind us and them 
of another major event in the history of Israel, because it is written very much the same way. This recalls the sacrifice of Isaac, do you remember? Which is a type of the final sacrifice of the Messiah when Abraham and Isaac were climbing the mountain of Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. Isaac asked this important question in Genesis 22:7. He says, Behold the fire, behold the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb, Isaac asked. So too, perhaps, did all those who offered the sacrifices, they also must have asked, When would this stop? It did. When the Lamb of God came. You know, in the story of Akedah, by the way, it was Abraham, the father, who was the one who carried the fire, just like the heavenly father gave the fire for the altar. And Isaac, the son, he was the one who carried the wood on his shoulder up the mountain. He's likened to the true son of God who carried the wood in the shape of the tav, preparing for his own sacrifice. Both these events took place in the same mountain, of course, to the place of the crucifixion where Yeshua was to take all the fires of judgment. By the way, this is only the beginning of the story because Leviticus goes even deeper and deeper into showing these relationships. And the idea of the image of the wood, by the way, this is important, seemed to have been carried in the New Testament and brought to our memory by the words of Paul and Peter who use this word, wood, very often to describe the cross, the tithe itself, and thus guarding the memory of the sacrifice found in Leviticus and also with Isaac. This is something, by the way, that was lost in translations. For instance, see what Peter says as he is speaking to Jewish believers who are under severe persecution for their faith. 1 Peter 2.24 who himself, that is Yeshua Mashiach, bore our sins in his own body on where? The tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness and by whose stripes we were healed. He mentions the word tree or wood, wood, xilon in Greek, instead of the word cross, storos, perhaps to remind these Jewish believers and us as well that Yeshua is the final sacrifice of the Mosaic law. The same word, Zilon, is the word, the Septuagint. That is the 70 rabbis who translated the Bible into Greek. For they mentioned this word all over Leviticus 1. Four times over for the word wood. This same word is by Peter as well. When he spoke to the high priest and the whole Sanhedrin, right, in Acts 5.30. See what he says. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a tree, xilon, on wood. Peter was speaking to priests who were present and see that he did not use the word cross, but used the term that they were very familiar with, which brought them back to the altar, understanding that it was Yeshua who died for us. Unfortunately, again, these words are translated as cross instead of wood in most translations. The word for cross in Greek, again, is storos, mentioned 27 times, always describing the cross. The word for wood or tree, xilon, is mentioned 20 times, but always for a tree or wooden object like a club. There's a difference between these two words. 
And we will be listening for that concluding portion of this message, Sermon 4, on our next program. But for now, we'd like to bring you to another segment of this airing called Q&A with Messianic leader Jacques Isaac Abizon. Today's question concerns the sin against the Holy Spirit. Let's listen in. When speaking of salvation and God's offer of it, we have been taught that each one, perhaps even to their very last breath, can be forgiven and saved. What then is the blasphemy against the Spirit? And who are those who commit it? And why is there no forgiveness for it? Thank you. See, this is a, an important and disturbing question for many. Let me begin by saying that this sin cannot apply to believers. This sin can only be committed by those who rejected Yeshua after they have known him and, uh, and have been uh, and many times over confronted with him. Let us see how it is presented to us in the scriptures. The passage is found in Matthew 12, 31 to 32, where Jesus says himself, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What, what then is the blasphemy against the Spirit, and why is this sin unforgivable? The, the context in Matthew reveals to us the reason. Let us begin with chapter 1 of Matthew and climb our ways to the final sayings that we find here in chapter 12. Beginning chapters 1 and 2, Yeshua came really as a baby, a more humble and lowly approach one can never find. The, the Almighty God did not come on a white horse from heaven threatening judgment and death. He made himself, like we read in Philippians, of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of man. And so even now, we can come to him in all confidence and not in fear of condemnation. After this, in Matthew, we read in chapters 3 to 4 about the Messiah as a child and how he was being prepared for his ministry with a baptism, with a temptation. From chapter 5 to 7, he, Yeshua, addresses the population. He gently appeals to the people's heart, intelligence, and reason, so that they will recognize the goodness of God. This was done during the Sermon on the Mount. Then, beginning in chapter 8, Jesus showed them his miraculous powers with signs they have never seen before in history. But all this was to no avail, at least for the majority. And when we arrive in chapters 11 and 12, we see the final rejection of the Messiah of Israel by the religious leaders. Yet they were the teachers of Israel who were the guardians of the word of God. It is in chapter 12 where they pronounced their final assessment and condemnation of the Messiah saying, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the rulers of demons. These were their last words, words which changed the course of history for Israel and also changed the way the Messiah acted and spoke from this point on in the Gospel of Matthew. This was the final rejection. 
called in Matthew 12.31 the blasphemy against the Spirit, which amounts to refusing these incessant appeals of salvation which are present from the very creation of man. The primary group that is in view here, again, are the religious leaders of the first century, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and all the fringe groups who had the Bible in hand and which contains all that we need to know about the Messiah of Israel. But when the teacher of the righteousness, as the Messiah was called, came, they refused him. Yet he did not come as a surprise to them. Behind him were not only his words, his miracles, but also a long trail of over 100 powerful prophecies of his first coming in the Tanakh. Yet they refused them and thus committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he said, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now, why did Jesus speak of the Spirit himself? And he added, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, he will be forgiven. Why the Holy Spirit as opposed to the Son of Man? Well, they mistreated, they persecuted the Messiah when he was on earth. And while many do the same even today with their words, this he will forgive and thank God for this. But the Holy Spirit ministry is different. The very task of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to the Messiah. He is the one who leads man and woman to God. He is the last chance, the last link to heaven. And this is well explained in John 16, 8 concerning the work of the Ruach HaKodesh. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is what he does today. He convicts, uh, that, that is, he exposes, he explains, he reasons with the individual to bring him or her to a saving knowledge of the Messiah. This is a great gift from God to have his own spirit to reason with us. He does so in the hearts of man today as he did to the creation which was covered in darkness, if you remember in Genesis 1. In the same way he separates darkness from light in the mind of the people. This is when they accept or refuse the Messiah. So the Spirit has not finished his work of creation. He is still hovering over this fallen world in order to lead men and women to light. And a refusal of his gentle work in the heart of men will end up to committing the sin against the Holy Spirit. What about today, now? How can someone actually commit the blasphemy against the Ruach HaKodesh? The sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can only be committed by those who heard the word of God, understood it and saw his mighty power, but at the end, not only rejected him and left, but insulted him and still insult him and publicly proclaimed their unfaithfulness and encouraged others to do so. These are the apostates, but also those who, like many of the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Essenes, handled the word of God just to deny his author, Yeshua. Of these are the many cults that we see today. However, there's a big difference, and I want to stress this, between those who backslid and go away for a while, and those who make it their mission to speak against God and his people. These are addressed in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1029, for instance. 
of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be brought thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? These then are the apostates. An apostate is one who comes again close to God, understands salvation, knows and even experiences the Spirit, but refuses to accept the offer of God and lives. Uh, th these are not regular and believers. They came inside the flock, and we are told in our text that they insulted the Spirit, something which is like the blasphemy against the Spirit. They even trampled the Son of God underfoot. The word trample underfoot is one word, and it means exactly that, to step on something or someone we despise. At times, for these people, it's preferable to stay out of the church because the church could be a place to bless and to condemn as well. And apostasy is really the sin of the demons. These were up there and saw the works of God more than any individual, but they rebelled against their own creator. This is perhaps the main reason why they cannot be saved, for there is no salvation after apostasy, for it is then impossible to renew them again to repentance, as we read in Hebrews 6, 9. So let us remember that a believer in Yeshua has passed this point of committing the sin against the Holy Spirit. But of those who constantly refuse to consider and accept Yeshua as their personal Savior, their choice is respected. But it leads to the blasphemy against the Ruach HaKodesh. Shalom Ariel is a daily radio program emphasizing the Jewish perspective of Scripture. God is not through dealing with Israel, nor will he renege any of the promises he has made to her. Our teacher for this program, Jacques Isaac Gabizon, is a Messianic Jewish believer and Messianic leader at Beth Ariel Congregation right here in Montreal. If you've been encouraged by the messages, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at one 685 5902 or you may write us at info at Beth Ariel, B-E-T-H, a-R-I-E-L, all one word, dot C-A. You are also welcome to join us for our Saturday morning services. We are located at 6297 Monkland Boulevard, corner of Madison in NDG. The message is given in English, but we do offer simultaneous translation into French and Russian. Services begin at 11 a.m. We have Shabbat school for children of all ages, up to and including teens. You may also download audio messages from our website at bethariel.ca and enjoy other in-depth teaching from Jacques Isaac. If you would like to sign up for informative newsletters, log on to our website and add your name to our email list. Shalom Ariel is a listener-supported program. If you have it on your heart to donate, it will be a great blessing for the continuing ministry and outreach of Beth Ariel. Thank you and Shalom Shalom.